Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Welcome everyone to episode 13. (laughs) Unlucky number 13. 13's a good number. 13's my favorite number. I think I'm a person who just doesn't have favorites in almost anything. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it was like, I don't, I mean seven or whatever, but how generic. (laughs) What about colors? You don't have a favorite color? No. Psychopath. (laughs) Rainbow. (laughs) Uh, No, there are different colors for different things. (laughs) I know, but there's not one that like you're just really drawn to and want to be surrounded with no all right i tried i can never pick well some things it's like how do you pick a favorite song favorite movie favorite book like i i I just can never pick a favorite anything you're a p that's why myers briggs you're a p but it's very on brand who needs to pick (laughs) in fact maybe it's weird to pick huh (laughs) (laughs) actually i do have a favorite number and it's five for five star reviews yes woo very deftly done but in disclosure that's actually not my favorite number that's just the thing i said to transition to a five star review (laughs) noted so just really quickly before we get into the episode You know, we've promised we would read five-star reviews on episodes if you leave them. So we got one to read. And just, you know, a quick plug. If you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, we will read it on a future episode. Totally. And also, you'll get that warm, cozy feeling from having done something good. So this one is from Riley, entitled, My New Go-To Podcast. Yeah. Hey, Kirsten and Andrew. Most Foul is quickly becoming my favorite true crime podcast. I was so captivated by this week's episode that I took the long way home from work so I could finish it. Nice. Keep up the great work. You're killing it. Yay. Thank you, Riley. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Woo. Insert air horn noise. Except <laughs> I'm, I'm the one who edits it, and I'm probably not going to do that. So... <laughs> When are we going to graduate to having a little mixing board where we can do sounds? I want I want to. In my free time, I I look on the interwebs for podcast supplies. I'm such a dork. Like <laughs> That's how I spend my free time <laughs> when I'm not researching or doing my job or spending time with my family. Researching I'll just throw mixers. in sound effects. Yeah. yeah. Just random ones. I This will be very short because I feel like I might have said this on the podcast, but (laughs) my audio editing class in college was such a joke. And we had to do this like a fully audio like piece (laughs) that was like storytelling with sound effects. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, it was like a full minute of just someone walking down a hallway and then you hear like the door like and then the teacher was like we were like listening to it in class and the teacher was like that sure was a long hallway <laughs> and they just started 
the footstep sound effects again. Oh, no. So it was like they opened the door and went down another hallway. (laughs) We didn't know what we were doing. I made an A. It's all fine. That reminds me, when I was just out of college, the summer after I graduated, I went to Universal Studios in Florida for the first time, and they had a... I don't know what is what do you call like a it's not a ride it was a experience a digital interactive experience and they had an experience at the time that was it showed the behind the scenes of foley artists and so it took a scene from murder she wrote like uh-huh. i think we've discussed the best television show of all time um and showed the layers of audio being placed over it and it was uh-huh. so cool. And in that moment, I was thinking, God, I wish I could go back in time and just like redo college. Like, what am I doing with my life? I should have been a Foley artist. No, I, not necessarily Foley art, but I think that often. <laughs> it's like, but am this I is saying so cool. that right? Foley artist, right? That's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to be cool, but I'm not like totally sure that I'm doing it right. Because <laughs> <laughs> when it's like, when you do have an experience like that, and you're like, oh, that's like a career people yeah. have. Yeah, I know. Oh, my gosh. I feel like, yeah, my life is riddled with missed opportunities. It's so sad. Oh. No, but yeah, seriously, but... like, I this is one of the goals that I have for my kids is I don't really care what they end up doing, but making sure that they're exposed to a lot of different things and that, mm-hmm. you know, they're able to stumble on what it is that they want to do before they're like 30 and have a PhD in something totally unrelated and boring. And think of all the nepotism you can give them when we're famous podcasters. Totes, and I totally will. I mean, hate the game, not the player. <laughs> I mean, that is so apt. I've been feeling a little downtrodden and like I'm sure a lot of the listeners have too of just like, well, if every system in our entire world is broken, what can I even do? Yeah. And so for me, that's like go on long walks and eat ice cream. I mean, I do feel like this phrase or this kind of construction is overused, but one of the good things to come out of COVID is I I feel like it's stripped away some of the, I don't know, the, the fog or, or the delusion that, that we live under that this is important or that is important. A job is important or, you know, this person being famous is important. It's like, what's really important and i think that that's come to the fore for a lot of people i mean like the great resignation or whatever they're calling it in the news now it's just people really taking stock of their lives and what it is that they want to do i mean we've all got to eat and have housing and that's the goal but i do think it's forced a lot of people to really take a deep deep look into what they value and reevaluate things when they keep talking about the labor shortage and it's like, well, clearly it's a wage and working condition shortage. Like, I, I don't, they're like, oh, a million people quit their jobs. I think it was only like 400,000, but that's still a lot. Right. Like, quit their jobs last month and the labor shortage continues. It's like, no, there are people. Yeah. It's that the jobs are trash. Right. 
The one thing I do wonder though, and I, I haven't, and I mean, you know, life is busy. It's not, I'm not claiming to have done an exhaustive research on this topic, but I haven't seen a lot of articles pop up about the loss of 700,000 people from mm-hmm. the labor force and how well, that plays into things. And, and obviously not all of them were of working age, but you know, a lot of people were lost because of COVID. Well, yeah, I mean, 700,000 plus the massive increase in suicide, plus the massive increase in drug overdose, Mm -hmm. plus the massive increase of mostly female parents leaving the workforce to go back to their children. Mm -hmm. And now you couple that with all the people refusing to work actual trash jobs. Yeah. For no money, no benefits, for the same companies that fired everybody. And they're like, why won't Americans work? Yeah. It's like, like, no, this capitalist bullshit. Right. Maybe we need to rethink this whole system that's killing people and making everyone unhappy. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. That sounds like a lot of work, Andrew. In the meantime, (laughs) I'll, um, I'll, uh, you know... Go on walks and eat ice cream. And... I mean, everybody's got to cope, you know? It's like, there are worse coping mechanisms than taking walks and eating ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> or I should say, more detrimental to your well-being. We're not living in a in a judgy, like, this is good, this is bad world. Just, you know, things that are beneficial for your longevity and things that are not. Yeah. What else? That ice cream, though, it's good. You know, ice cream is, I do enjoy ice cream. I mean, not a monster. (laughs) But it's one of the desserts that we can have in the house. And I won't just, like, eat it and then eat it till it's gone. I can resist it. It's like, oh, yeah, I'll have a little spot of ice cream and then I can stop. Like, you know, people who can eat, like, half a Snickers, (laughs) which I don't even understand, people who eat half of candy bars. But that's how I am about ice cream. I can just have, like, two spoonfuls and then I'm like, "Mm, I'm good. Yeah, it's it's really, like, probably one of the only desserts I ever buy and have in my house, too. It's a Mm -hmm. nice, like, go grab but I don't buy cakes or cookies or candy, yeah. really. I mean, I have I have peanut M&Ms that I, like, exclusively reserve for if I pop some popcorn for a sweet and salty treat. Mm-hmm. But I know my willpower, and my willpower says I need to <laughs> not have a, stilly, a fully stocked uh, candy or dessert yeah. option in my house. It's so funny because... <laughs> Just, I don't know, like a couple of weeks ago, I, w- I said to my husband, I was like, I know he was buying um, things of Oreos and putting them Oof. in my desk drawer right here next to where <laughs> <laughs> all the magic happens. And he knows that like, you know, chocolate and sweets are my, are my love language. <laughs> and so he was doing that knowing that I was stressed and work was busy. And so I said to him a couple of weeks ago, I was like, I know that you're doing this because you love me. I need you to stop buying sweets at the store and stop <laughs> like refilling them. Um, and so he did. And so last night we were getting ready to hunker down for a night of like watching murder documentaries. And I said to him, oh, do we have, he was in the basement where we keep our overstock. I, I texted him. I said, is there anything down there like remotely 
sweets or candy like and he's like no nothing and so then this morning as he's doing the grocery order he's like do you want me to get you something this week and i'm like no 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 so it's this like push and pull in my higher moments i'm like no we cannot have that in the house and then friday night at 10 o'clock i'm like what is down there there's got to be something that resembles chocolate down there so that is similar to my desperation I hate to say desperation because I do like it on its own, but I feel like when I am desperate for something like that, I turn to a cup of hot chocolate. Mm, That's a good one. My go-to is, I say sugary cereal, not like, you know, tricks or something, but like a sugary granola cereal. That's what I ended up having last night. Ooh, I lied by omission. I totally forgot. There is something that I have that is my snack. What? It is a bag of semi-sweet chocolate chips. Yes. Okay, when I tell you that 33 chocolate chips is 70 calories, sorry to be that person, sorry everyone, but (laughs) I do try to pay attention loosely. I'm not counting calories, but I just like to, as I'm buying something, I want to know what's in it. But semi-sweet, you can't eat a ton because it's semi-sweet, not Mm -hmm. fully sweet. And so, and I'm not like, I'm not throwing 33 chocolate chips, but like when I think about, you know, those like totally BS 100 calorie Oreo snack packs where it's like four tiny Oreo wafers. Yeah. It's like I could eat a handful of chocolate chips for 100 calories and be like fully satiated on a chocolate craving. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing. I totally forgot. I have that in my uh, pantry too. That is also a trick that I have because the kids won't get into chocolate. Like, we can't keep candy. I mean, okay, now I sound like a monster. We could. <laughs> but, like, you know, I don't want my kids to get cavities and diabetes and whatever. So we don't keep, you know, candy is for just, like, Halloween and Easter or whatever. If we had it, they would be in it all the time and it would be gone. But chocolate chips, they don't they don't connect and they're kept in the baking cupboard and whatever. So, yeah, we do that trick sometimes, too. But... I mean, the depths of my stress and dirty coping have been, I can't even keep semi-sweet chocolate chips around anymore. (laughs) One quick, truly embarrassing story. Um, In college, I was drinking in my dorm room, Mm -hmm. pretty drunk. I was having spiced rum and Dr. Pepper, which was my college drink of choice. (laughs) It's delicious. I mean, I stand. I mean, I would. I have not had one since college. I just had a bad rum experience in college and like spiced rum, I should say. Okay. So I was drunk at this point and ran out of mixer. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, oh no. Meaning the Dr. Pepper. Mixer is a very sophisticated way to say Dr. Pepper. (laughs) (laughs) But I I didn't have anything that could be mixed. Oh, okay. And so I was like, oh, God, what do I do? And this is a drunk person's brain. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to mix in hot chocolate. Mm-hmm. That actually sounds like it would be delicious. Except all I did was I poured the powder directly into the oh. alcohol. Oh, my God, Andrew. <laughs> and I remember it was clumpy, powdery hot chocolate mix and straight rum as i was just just trying to drink it. Gross. 
Although I feel like if we ever do now create like a recipe book, aka a cookbook, uh, is it a cookbook if you don't cook it? Anyway, um, if we ever do now, we have to come up with a recipe for spiced rum hot chocolate. But that's the thing. Spiced rum hot chocolate probably would be good. Like I was, my brain was functioning enough to be like conceptually this could work right but not enough to execute it (laughs) i'll remember that forever and i didn't have any cup so i was drinking out of a measuring cup (laughs) hard times man hard times (laughs) (laughs) oh Oh i just remember how disgusting it was but i was drunk enough that i kept going i was gonna say but you had to drink it because you were in college and it wasn't just like alcohol was plentiful when you had alcohol you had to drink it well and i was i went to college with the dry campus so i wasn't allowed to drink in my room anyway like i was already breaking the rules so i couldn't like just go out drunk and get some sodas even though there was a gas station across the street right and never this because i was drunk but like in other times right across like there was like a bridge right next to my dorm. It was on a river, but like right across the river was a drive through liquor store. <laughs> we had that in my hometown. <laughs> yeah. The South, the Midwest, it's a slightly different place. I mean, when I think about Louisiana and drive through daiquiris. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> whoa, there are some dark times, but also it's incredibly convenient. Yeah. You're having a party and you just drive through and you're like, I'd like four gallons of strawberry daiquiri please and then you just have it in basically like milk jugs frozen and you just drive it and then pop it into your freezer and then it's like ready for your party and it comes out slushy Mm -hmm. that's sorcery but the sketchier ones give it to you in a cup with a piece of tape over the straw hole and it's like if you remove that tape it's illegal (laughs) oh my god and the fancier ones are kind of like boba where it's like heat sealed and yeah, you have yeah, to yeah, break yeah. that with the straw. Yeah. Wow. That's a whole was, culture. It's a different world. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, college is a is a interesting time. I cannot I'm imagine you the transition right here. <laughs> to the episode? Yeah. And and that transition would be. <laughs> I mean, I can only like throw the ball up. You have to hit it. <laughs> if I could do the transition, I would have just done it. I was just giving you like the seed. Yeah, college is interesting. But a thing I didn't do was figure out the perfect crime. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have a little bit more practice to do before we're ready for a live show. But we're getting there. <laughs> Oh. I mean, my college experience had all of the homosexual undertones and none of the murder. (laughs) Well, after that beautiful transition, shall I just jump right in? (laughs) Yeah. Well, Andrew, I want to start out by setting the scene, as I sometimes do. And there's a saying that I don't know if you have heard of or our listeners have heard of, but it it goes that Chicago put the roar in the Roaring Twenties, and that's where our story starts today. Chicago, in the 1920s, 
Um, once the city had been a sleepy cowpoke of fewer than 30,000 people um, way back in 1850, but by 1910, Chicago had grown to a metropolis of over 2 million people. Around 1917, the Great Migration of Black Americans began. Uh, folks fleeing the Jim Crow South and relocating to upper Midwestern cities with new economic opportunities, um, these Black Americans completely reshaped Chicago again at the early part of the 1900s. Between 1910 and 1920, the Black population of Chicago increased by 148%. And the agrarian life that had once been prominent in that part of the country gave way to an economy centered around heavy industry. Meanwhile, in 1919, the United States Congress ratified the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibited the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating beverages. A.K.A. The, yeah, the prohibition started. Um, Can I do one quick aside? Yeah. Did you know that Mississippi had prohibition until the 1960s? What? Uh-huh. I did not know that. Yeah, full prohibition into the 60s. And then technically prohibition was ended like last year because there were still dry counties that like had to overturn being a dry county by like a vote and a charter as opposed to choosing to be a dry county. That's crazy. But like the state full prohibition in the 1960s. It would be such an interesting thing for a TV show or movies about like bootleggers, but not in the like super olden times. Right. That sorry, is I, nuts. sorry to break your flow, but no, no, fun trivia for your parties. So interesting. Wow. Well, I mean, the prohibition obviously was a huge thing and made its mark on our country in a lot of different ways, but. In Chicago, um, like the rest of the country, World War I had just ended, and World War I was the bloodiest war that the West had ever known at that time. Um, lots and lots of loss of life, even from the U.S., who had joined the war late. World War I ended in November 1918, and Americans were ready to cut loose after the austerity of wartime. So the influx of Southern Black musicians into Chicago via the Great Migration, and the newfangled sound that they brought with them called jazz, um, combined with this prohibition era kind of alcohol consumption being forced underground and a general atmosphere of post-war euphoria. And that was kind of seen as a huge opportunity and a perfect marriage for organized crime leaders. So in Chicago, as other parts of the country, speakeasy culture was born. And in that location, Al Capone was its king. And so this is just a thumbnail sketch, but I think it puts people in mind of, of the time and the place that we're talking about for our crime today. Chicago in the Roaring Twenties was prosperous, there was excess, and there was a lot of change happening. On Wednesday, May 21st, 1924, at about 8 in the morning, Robert Franks, age 14, and known to his family and friends as Bobby, left for school at the Harvard School for Boys, a Tony private school in the affluent Kenwood district of Chicago's South Side, then an enclave for many of the city's business barons and millionaires, including Bobby's father, Jacob Franks, a real estate magnate and president of the Rockford Watch Company. 
Bobby returned home for lunch around noon that day, which was a common practice at that time. Kids came home for lunch from school. But when he headed back to school, neither he nor his mother knew that that was to be their final parting. After school, Bobby stayed on campus to serve as umpire in a baseball game. And around 5.15 that evening, he left the school on foot bound for home, which was less than a half mile away. As the evening wore on, Bobby did not return home and his parents became increasingly worried. Again, we've talked a lot about how different attitudes towards children's independence were back then, but even then, by 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, a child not returning from school would be cause for great concern. So at 10 p.m. that evening, as, as the family consulted with their lawyer to decide what to do next, they received a call. And Bobby's mom answered the phone, and a man's voice came over the line saying, Your son has been kidnapped. We will let you know tomorrow what to do. Do not tell anyone or the boy will be killed. And then the line went dead. Wary but unmoved by the threat, Bobby's father consulted with police at the advice of his lawyer, and police advised waiting until the morning to act. And in the meantime, they kept the report in the strictest confidence and kept it out of the detective blotter. And this becomes important later. The next morning, the Franks received a typed note demanding $10,000 ransom in specific denominations uh, for the safe return of their son. Bobby's father hurried to collect the ransom money, which was a small amount compared to his huge fortune, with which some reports said was 10 million, 100 million. Um, the family was very, very wealthy. And, and then he waited for further instructions. But by all accounts, they were complying with everything that the kidnappers were demanding. At around 3.15 that afternoon, the kidnapper, who had called himself Mr. Johnson in the note, called again and instructed Bobby's father to take a taxi, um, which the kidnappers had sent to the home, and then to go to a nearby drugstore to await further instructions. But before the taxi arrived, the family learned that a body had been found fitting the description of Bobby um, in a culvert just south of the city across the border in Indiana. So Bobby's uncle was dispatched immediately to the morgue to view the body, and he called very shortly afterward and confirmed to his sister and her husband that the unidentified body was Bobby's. So obviously at that point, all ransom requests, all of that is off the table, and it turns into a homicide investigation. So with the scope of the crime known and the identity of the victim confirmed, the investigation really kicked into overdrive at this point. One of the first and most revealing clues they had was the ransom note itself, which, contrary to current beliefs at that time about who kidnappers were, it was rendered in perfect English with flawless diction. So much so that detectives initially suspected that teachers from Bobby's school must be involved. The headmaster and all of the English faculty members were interrogated, but eventually cleared. Another major clue was a pair of glasses that were found on the trail leading to Bobby's body. Initially, the coroner assumed that the glasses belonged to Bobby himself and placed them on his face. When Bobby's father later arrived at the morgue to view his son, he noted the strange glasses and he confirmed that they did not belong to his son. So this became now a huge, a huge clue. 
The police focused their efforts on locating the owner of the glasses, feeling very strongly that they were the key to identifying the culprit. There was some question about, you know, how long they had been out there, but they were clean. And so they felt like in the timeline, they were dropped around the time of the murder or Mm -hmm. the time that the body had been placed in the in the culvert. Both the lenses and the frames of the glasses were common at the time, but the width of them was noted to be exceptionally narrow and the hinges were really unique. So after reviewing thousands of prescriptions from the entire Chicago area manually, because 1924, investigators found one that appeared to match and fit all of the characteristics. The prescription led them to 19-year-old law student Nathan F. Leopold Jr., a fellow Kenwood resident and son of a millionaire paper mill owner. On May 29th, police brought Leopold in for questioning, along with his friend Richard Loeb, also a Kenwood resident and son of Sears and Roebuck Vice President Albert Loeb, who was visiting Leopold when police arrived. The pair were immediately separated and questioned, about their movements that night, about a bloody chisel that had been found in the vicinity of Leopold's house, about the glasses, about everything. Reports at the time state that the pair were extraordinarily calm, to the point of being cool, and they seemed to kind of derive enjoyment from the interrogation, like it was a game. Um, And this also was noted in the current records. But they were getting police over to their side. You know, they were very frank with their stories. Their stories remained consistent over the course of questioning. And they were essentially the same as each other, even though they had been separated immediately. And their story was that they had spent the evening driving around in Leopold's car with two girls whose last names they never learned. They met them, I think, at a car hop or someplace, and they decided to go cruising um, with the girls. And then they had dropped them off and never saw them again. So Flemix, police returned to Leopold's home in search of a typewriter uh, they believed that the ransom note had been written on. But instead of finding a typewriter, they found nothing like that. They did find a chauffeur who wanted to talk to them, the Leopold family chauffeur, Sven England. And he told police that the men's alibi, the story that they had been driving around in Leopold's car that evening, could not possibly be true because Leopold's car was with him in the family garage from 1.30 that afternoon until at least 10.30. He was working on the brakes to the car. Sensing maybe that Leopold was the dominant personality in the friendship um, between the two young men, investigators approached Loeb first with this new damning information. And Loeb cracked almost immediately and asked to speak with the state's attorney who was handling the case. Eventually, both men confessed in full to the crimes, and in an effort to avoid the death penalty, both of them pleaded guilty to kidnapping and murder. But what exactly had happened? I mean, that's kind of the the mechanics of the case and the facts of the crime. But how the hell did the sons of these three privileged families come crashing together in this way, leaving one of them dead and two of them facing the gallows? And more vexingly, why? I think that's the big question of this. Mm -hmm. So Nathan Leopold was the youngest of four brothers. And Richard, um, Dickie, as he was known, Loeb, was the third of four brothers. They had grown up in the same well-to-do neighborhood, um, Kenwood, which we talked about earlier. 
but they hadn't been particularly close as kids. Um, Leopold went to the Harvard school, which is where Bobby had gone and Dickie had gone to a different school, but they had grown up in that same neighborhood. And then when they went to University of Chicago together, they really connected then and that's when they became friends. Leopold uh, had an estimated IQ of over 200, which incidentally, if that is true, would place him among the highest IQs ever recorded. He had recently completed his undergraduate studies at the University of Chicago, and at age 18, he was their youngest ever graduate. He had a vast knowledge of different topics and was conversant, according to him, uh, in 15 languages and fluent in five. I found reports that this was just kind of him bragging and he was known to brag about his you know perceived accomplishments and those things weren't true but he was definitely abnormally intelligent he had also a rich fantasy life and was as i said before a tremendous braggart but he was also small and awkward uh, he was self-serious and condescending he really thought that nobody was worthy of his friendship he was so smart and so kind of beyond most people, and he kept everyone at a distance. Everyone except for Loeb. And so Dickie Loeb was also brilliant. Uh, he had an estimated IQ of 160, which for reference here, Stephen Hawking is said to have had an IQ of 160. So even though Loeb's IQ was supposedly really significantly lower than Leopold's, he was no slouch. He was also brilliant. Loeb had also recently completed his undergraduate degree, graduating from the University of Michigan at 17, after spending his first year or so at the University of Chicago with Leopold. And like Leopold, he was the youngest ever graduate of that institution at that time. But unlike Leopold, Loeb was handsome, he was charming, he was sociable, and he wasn't particularly devoted to his studies. He graduated and he graduated very young, but he didn't get good grades while at school and he didn't really seem to care too much. He preferred reading detective stories and, mm -hmm. and just kind of hanging out. But however well they may have adapted and blended into situations beyond their years, both men were outsiders by virtue of their rare intelligence and the precocious attendance at college. They were oddities even. You know, so they're thrown into a world, they both started college when they were 14, 15, that they could intellectually keep up with, but emotionally they were out of step and socially they were out of step. Yeah. With this in common, I think they formed a really close friendship, which did eventually become a sexual relationship as well. They bonded over Loeb's interest in crime and detective fiction and Leopold's fixation and the Nietzschean idea of the Ubermensch, which literally in German means overhuman, um, is sometimes in English called Superman. Their friendship, as I said, turned sexual, and they reportedly developed a shared fantasy world, one in which Loeb was a master criminal, in his mind kind of a kingpin, and again, backdrop of Al Capone and all of this happening in the mm -hmm. city at this time. And Leopold was his, quote, strong and powerful slave favored by his sovereign to settle disputes in single-handed combat, end quote. Ew. So their fantasy selves really dovetailed perfectly. Um, Loeb had this need for thrills and notoriety and followers, and Leopold was that follower um, and 
and really fell in line with Loeb's ideas about what they could do with their superior intellect. Mm-hmm. And so in time, Leopold's Ubermensch obsession led them to believe that their supernormal, quote, um, intelligence, as it was sometimes called in the 1920s, that meant that they were, in fact, above other humans and not subject to the same edicts and morals as, quote, normal people. In a letter to Loeb, Leopold writes, quote, A superman is, on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything he may do, end quote. The two had long been using their perceived exemption from ordinary laws to justify petty theft and some other small-time crimes. They set some fires and just kind of thrill crimes, which showed that they were above other men. So it was part of that kind of delusion that they were Mm -hmm. beyond normal rules. But by November 1923, they had become bored with the petty crime And facing an impending separation, Leopold was about to leave for a trip to Europe and then enter Harvard Law School. So faced with that impending separation, they started to plan a perfect crime, quote unquote perfect crime, as a parting gesture that would, on one hand, prove their superiority and also cement their bond for all time. So, you know, the impression that I got is that Leopold was in love with Loeb. I mean, that comes through pretty strongly. Mm -hmm. Loeb seems like he was more in it for this kind of strange dynamic. But whatever the true nature of their relationship, they were in this together and they wanted to do this, this thing together as a symbol of, of their, of their strange commitment to one another. I don't really totally know how to describe it. Yeah. So as they talked about the different possibilities and, and they did this as, as almost an exercise in, an academic exercise or something that they might do for a class. They talked about different crimes and they chose murder uh, with the added flourish of kidnapping. And the murder, I think, was just an escalation. As I said, they had been doing burglaries, they had been doing arson, and I Mm -hmm. think they needed something bigger. And so they chose murder. They also, I think, chose that crime based on, again, Loeb's need to be recognized and seen. At the time, you know, you had to really escalate to a high level of crime, something ghastly to make the news because the nightly news was filled with organized crime, murder, shootings, drugs, Mm -hmm. prostitution rings. Um, So they they knew that they had to go to the next level. So they settled on crime and kidnapping. Um, They talked about later adding the kidnapping because it would obscure the motive or the lack of motive. It would it would seem like people who were just out for the money and because they didn't need the money, that might eliminate them as suspects. Mm-hmm. But also for the money. They enjoyed having money. They had never wanted for anything, according to reports. But the money was just seen as kind of icing on the cake. So why not have a ransom? According to Leopold's confession, collecting the ransom was the trickiest bit to figure out. Um, I should say collecting the ransom and getting away with it. And it took some time to devise a plan that they believed was foolproof for that part of it. In the end, though, they used a scheme for collecting the ransom that was so intricate that their victim had been found and identified before they were able to collect it. And now I said earlier that it was important to note that 
the crime had been kept out of the detective blotter when the father reported it. And that actually gave them more time because Bobby's body was found first thing in the morning the next day. They had chosen the culvert thinking that no one would ever come across the body there, that they would have Mm -hmm. months. And at that point, his remains would be skeleton. But someone actually found it the very next morning. The only thing that delayed the identification until the next afternoon is that it had been kept out of the detective blotter. If that had been in there, they would have connected it even sooner and the family would have had an ID first thing in the morning. So, you know, there is a a theme here of kind of their supposed brilliance and the perfect plan that they had. But as we go on, you'll see a lot of things that they planned very carefully didn't didn't work out to plan. And that was that was one of them. But beginning weeks before the crime, they went through elaborate machinations to create a false identity known as Morton D. Ballard. Uh, Leopold used that identity to book a hotel room and hire a rental car for the abduction itself. This part went according to plan, but they apparently miscalculated the normal man's ability to identify someone by sight a week after meeting. Once things started coming apart, they got witnesses, various witnesses from the car rental company and the hotel who were able to unequivocally identify Leopold from a lineup as the person they had transacted with prior to the murder under that assumed identity. Finally, they settled upon the method of the murder, and that was to be bludgeoning with the blunt end of a chisel, which they bought just for that purpose. Um, That was meant to subdue the victim And then they planned to strangle the victim by wrapping a rope around his neck and each pulling one end. So that would make both of them equally culpable. But I do think, you know, there are some kind of sexual overtones to that in the sense that they were both engaging in this act together. So I think it was part of their Mm -hmm. fantasy life as well as maybe having a legal component. They knew that they both were kind of in it together. There was no there was no getting one of them kind of getting out of this if they got caught. Yeah. The consensus at the time and even now is that Leopold drove the car while Loeb struck Bobby from behind. And when that did not subdue him as they thought that it would, Loeb pulled him into the backseat and put a cloth in his mouth to keep him from screaming and attracting notice. They were, after all, right in their very own neighborhood. This act resulted in his suffocation. So, again, The initial part of this went to plan, but there's definitely evidence here that they, you know, there were a lot of realities to the situation that they hadn't thought of um, and things kind of went off the rails. And we've seen this in other cases, the Losers of Chaos case, um, one of the murders they talked about, you know, they expected to stab him once and that he would just crumple and that would be it. But murder is hard. um, And that was something they didn't know before this. And so... The killing they thought would be bloodless, but one of the blows to Bobby's head broke the skin on his forehead and he bled all over the car. So it was a mess. And both of them later stated in their statements that Leopold yelled, oh, God, this is terrible. I didn't know it would be like this. So, you know, in that moment, I think, again, the discrepancy between their intelligence and their kind of emotional and social intelligence really comes to the fore in moments like this. 
And so they hadn't pre-selected a victim, but they had settled on a couple of things, a couple of factors they were looking for as they searched for a victim. They wanted a boy because they felt that girls were too looked after, that boys have more independence and would be more likely to be off on their own. And they wanted someone from a wealthy family, someone who could pay the ransom. That was always part of the plan. And so they chose the nearby Harvard School as their hunting ground. Um, and for context, I put a map together because I'm a dork and it's what I do. <laughs> um, Leopold lived very close to the school. He lived on the same block as the school. Um, and Loeb and Bobby lived just a couple blocks away. So when I say that they chose that school as their hunting ground, I mean, they chose their immediate neighborhood. They were driving around the streets, the blocks right near their house. And ultimately, they chose Bobby because he just had the misfortune of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was a small boy, kind of slight, and they felt they could overpower him. So Leopold and Loeb cruise the neighborhood on the afternoon of May 21st, around 3.30, when school got out, looking for potential victims. And a little before 5.30, they spotted Bobby about a block from school. If you remember before, we said he had left the, the ball game, and he's walking on his way home. And he was about halfway when they saw him. They pulled up alongside, and Loeb knew Bobby. Some reports say they were cousins. Other reports say they were distant relatives, and some don't mention a connection at all. But they had an acquaintance. And so Loeb spoke to him, and they offered him a ride. And he said no, because he only had two blocks to go. Mm -hmm. And so Loeb then made a, a statement about wanting to talk to him about a tennis racket. Bobby was really into tennis. And he finally capitulated and got in. And Leopold reported that he drove one more block and then turned the corner away from Bobby's house. And that's when Loeb struck the first blow. Bobby really, after all of the searching and the ransom and back and forth, he had been dead really within moments of getting in that car. And this was by design. The entire kidnap and ransom demand was always a ruse. They always knew that they were going to kill him, obviously. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to do it quickly. It was never a matter of trying to keep him alive. Um, they stated that they specifically wanted to mislead the family into having hope and believing that their son was alive and then collect the ransom under false pretenses. And they thought, I mean, that's such a cruel act. Um, just at its core. I mean, murder is cruel, but to toy with the emotions of the family on top of the murder, they thought that that would prove that they were above the kind of normie emotions like empathy and compassion, um, which check, check, check. And according to Leopold, they, quote, did it for the experience through a spirit of adventure, end quote. Ugh, vomit. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we could go really deep into philosophy, but, you know, part of the Superman or the Ubermensch was this idea that all experience was good experience if it led to happiness or learning or various things. And again, they're kind of advanced intellect. They could read these texts and understand these texts, but they didn't grasp the emotional or social kind of underpinnings. And so they had a very naive reading of Nietzsche um, that led them to this idea that murder was an experience. And I think at one point, Leopold, um, he had an interest in ornithology and animals and things. And so he compared 
the experience of killing a person and using that as kind of a learning thing or in a, you know, a quote adventure to sticking a pin in a bug um, on a board. Ugh. Yeah. So that was kind of their mindset or Leopold's at least. So after they were arrested, they confessed their families enlisted famed defense attorney Clarence Darrow to defend their sons. And their roles in the crime were not in doubt, obviously. They had confessed and there was no sign that they had been, you know, under duress or anything like that. If anything, they seemed a bit proud of what they had done and happy to happy to talk about it once the jig was up. But their legal responsibility for the crime was in question, according to Darrow. Surely two men of such breeding and intelligence must have some mental defect or disturbance to commit such a cold-blooded crime. Um, And that was the argument and the thinking of some. Um, For Darrow's part, he is said to have taken the case because he strenuously opposed the death penalty. And this gave him the perfect platform for arguing his case against the death penalty really on a national stage. Leopold and Loeb were both were both facing the death penalty to count. I mean, the death penalty was a potential punishment for the murder, but also for the kidnapping um, Uh. with the enhancement of for ransom that bumped it to the next level. And just for reference, I noted here because as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, this is so much like episode four. We talked about Lindbergh that happened in 31. So this is seven years before. And that is the case that turned kidnapping into a federal crime but still depending on the state that you were in and any enhancements that might have been attached to a kidnapping charge the death penalty could be on the table for just that kidnapping part so darrow i think spent a lot of time strategizing over the best way to approach the defense of these two who were really demonized in the press and i mean you could say rightly so what they did was horrific And so he came up with an interesting strategy that he had used once before on a much lower profile case, and that was to plead guilty to the crime. If he pled not guilty and they went before juries, he felt very sure that they would get that they would be convicted and they would get the death penalty. By pleading guilty, there would be no trial at all. Technically, there would be only a sentencing hearing, and that's what they had, a 32-day sentencing hearing which was sometimes nonetheless called the trial of the century. Yeah. Multiple, quote, alienists, which is what psychiatrists were called at the time, were called on both sides to testify to Leopold and Loeb's mental states and sanity. They wanted to talk about mitigating circumstances. So, again, we've talked about this in some other cases. If they were not guilty by reason of insanity, then they could be committed for life, Mm -hmm. right? But there seemed to be no question at all about their sanity. They were cogent. They were articulate. They were, you know, whatever maybe kind of delusions they might have had, they were fully in touch with reality. Everyone seemed to agree on that. So not guilty by reason of insanity was off the table. But what Darrow wanted to do was he introduced the idea of not sanity or insanity, but mental illness. And, you know, the field of psychiatry and psychology was developing rapidly at this time. Um, and understandings were becoming better and better about what that meant within specialist circles. But for lay people, it was still not very well understood at all. But that was what he hoped to do. 
And so the prosecution witnesses were all neurological psychiatrists. And the defense specialists were all from the psychoanalytic side. So as often happens in cases, the, the experts came to opposite conclusions, depending which side of the, of the courtroom they were on. Um, but really, in this case, it was rooted not in having a predetermined outcome in mind, but their differing specialties. So the prosecution claimed the men had no mental meaning neurological defects or trauma. Physically, nothing had happened to their brains to impose a mental defect because that's one way to view mental illness is the organic makeup of the brain. The defense claimed they did have mental, meaning what we would call psychological defects or trauma. And that that was actually true, and they did a pretty good job of proving that, um, that they had had some traumas Leopold had been sexually abused by a governess, and there were different things. So mitigating circumstances, mental illness, mental wellness, mental defect, all of this was kind of thrown in. And knowing that this was going to be his strategy is part of why Darrow wanted to plead guilty, because it meant that a jury would not be deciding this case, a judge would. And so a judge is taking all of this in. Lay people at the time had very little understanding of the differences between these approaches. And the press churned out articles calling the entire field of psychiatry into question because in their view, how could you even rely on a field where eminent specialists couldn't agree on something as simple as a diagnosis? And we see some of this come up again today. Different specialists will say wildly different things. In the end though, Darrow gave a dramatic and earnest 12-hour summation uh, to the sentencing hearing, and it's been called the greatest speech or summation of his career. He spoke passionately about the barbarity of the death penalty and recounted the mitigating factors he believed should spare his clients' lives. His approach proved successful in one regard. In September 1924, the judge sentenced both Leopold and Loeb to life in prison for the murder of Bobby Franks plus 99 years for each of them for his kidnapping. So they had escaped the death penalty, which was Darrow's goal. They were never going to not go to jail for a very, very long time, maybe forever for this crime. But ultimately, after all of the witnesses that they brought, what the judge ended up saying is it wasn't the mental trauma that swayed him to give life in prison. It was their youth. That's what he said. Um, he said the mental defects and the traumas that the boys had suffered were really not very different from traumas that most people experience in their youth, and they don't turn mm -hmm. into killers. But he did cite their age. Now, the prosecutor basically went ballistic at this and lost his cool publicly in the press about the judge because many other people had been tried and sent to the gallows who were 18. You know, the boys, when the, they committed the crime, were 18 and 19. And by the time of the trial, I think they were both 19. You know, 19 in the 1920s was pretty well on your way to adulthood. So, yeah. you know, I think that the prosecution felt like that was just the strangest and most inconsistent kind of ruling. But that brought the case to an end. And the men were immediately sent to the same prison, but they were kept separated. 
they were then one of them i can't remember who was eventually sent to a different prison a little bit farther away and then after a few years around 1931 um they both were sent to the second prison and by that point enough time had passed they were not actively keeping the two apart they seemed to be pretty ideal prisoners they spent time volunteering um and leopold did a lot for the prison school and expanded the high school and even added junior college classes. But in 1936, Loeb was murdered by a fellow inmate and the circumstances of the murder are murky, um, but the killer claimed self-defense. He claimed that Loeb had uh, propositioned him sexually and gotten violent and he killed him, um, which... I'm not sure anyone really believes, but he was acquitted of the murder in a trial. Leopold reportedly suffered from depression after Loeb's murder, but he remained a model prisoner. And after many tries, he was finally granted parole in 1958. And he moved to Puerto Rico immediately. There was a nonprofit in Puerto Rico that essentially sponsored him, offered him a home and a job. Um, and so he left and went to Puerto Rico. He wrote a book about his life, although he donated the proceeds to a charity. He was very vocal about not wanting to profit from, from the crime. Um, he earned a master's degree from the University of Puerto Rico. He married a widow and lived out his days there teaching, volunteering, um, which he claimed was his penance for what he had done and researching birds. Fuck them. <laughs> this yeah, doesn't set off my justice meter. I know. It's a very strange one. And we were talking off pod. Like, I spent a ton of time researching this one because I just kept going down these little, like, rabbit warrens thinking I was going to find something that kind of explained it. I, You know. I mean, I, I feel like a terrible person, but I'm like, I'm glad he was murdered. Yeah. And then Leopold had to be sad about it. Like, I don't know, the megalomania and like, I'm writing my story and I'm not going to take the money because he probably still had all of his family's money. Oh, yeah. His family, they never forsook them or they remained steadfast in their support for both boys. I will say, and again, this is just one of those little things that I kind of dove into, but Loeb's father died the month after the sentencing. Um, he was already ill, but I think this really tipped him over um, mm -hmm. the edge, and he died shortly after. All of their parents really, none of their parents died much later than the crime, except Loeb's mother. She lived to 1950. All the others died within just a few years. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you get a very clear picture that this destroyed all three families, but Loeb supported Dickie, as he was known, until the end, visited him in prison all the time. Their brothers continued to support them. I think it took their families a while to really feel that it was true. I think until they confessed and they heard their confessions come out of their mouths, they had a hard time believing that it had happened. But even when they knew beyond a shadow that that's what had happened, they still supported them. Um, and I'm sure that was financial as well. I think part of what triggered our, our deciding to do this episode is this idea of two P 
people coming together and this kind of joint delusion that we saw in Slenderman and in um, the Parker Hume case. And I think, you know, when you see it here, the dynamics between the two, it's hard though to really know what is happening because in some ways Leopold was dominant and it seems like he was the smarter of the two, which I mean, again, they were both so smart. It almost mm -hmm. doesn't even matter. Right. But then Loeb was like, Loeb was kind of the sexy psychopath, I think. I mean, he was charming. He seemed to really take people in. A lot of girls came to his defense, you know, or women, I should say. Young women from the university came to the police and spoke up for Dickie that Dickie was a great guy and Dickie would never hurt it. You know, like he had a lot of girlfriends and they dated women, both of them, even though they were in this relationship. So it's hard to really understand the dynamics. I mean, it's clear that they didn't have a lot of empathy or remorse. I mean, we try not to throw mm -hmm. around diagnosis here, but, you know, so when he talks of penance later in his life, and I mean, generally being as good of a former prisoner slash murderer, kidnapper as you could be, you have to wonder, like, can someone really develop a conscience later in life? Or was he just, you know, without Loeb's influence, he had decided you know, he was going to live a certain way, you know, like it wasn't worth it for him. Like he was basically doing it for Loeb. And he said in one interview that the reason, the motive for him was pleasing Loeb. Like, so it, it's a very strange dynamic and it's hard to know exactly, you know, how it all came together. But to, you know, I mean, I think mental defect can be used in the sense that their brains clearly didn't function like, your typical person. Yeah, but I mean, it's so confusing. It's like you don't deserve to be let out of prison. I don't care how good of a prisoner you are and the fact that you're probably not a risk for ever committing that crime again. It's like, well, you killed someone and they never got to live their life. Why yeah. do you get to? Yeah. No, I'm with you. I mean, you know, we've talked before about the death penalty and I'm pretty ambivalent about that but for life in prison I have zero ambivalence I mean to me I don't think that I, I believe in punishment you know I, I don't think that sent sentencing in jail is just about are they a threat to society like I think that there has to be a punishment component and you know back to my fire and brimstone thing I do think eye for an eye in the sense that if you take a life, you give a life and that life is yours. Like not in the sense of being put to death, but being in prison. Mm -hmm. Fuck it's them. a weird one. Yeah, seriously. No, for and sure. Just the scariness, like in a way <laughs> to me, only my opinion, but to me, this is scarier than a serial killer. Like just these narcissist megalomaniac whatever they are i'm so smart and to prove it i'm just gonna pick any person at random and kill them because i know i can get away with it like and there's something so diabolical about two people doing it and not yeah. one yeah yeah but you know i think that in his makeup i think that they're I'm not convinced that Loeb couldn't have been like a modern day serial killer. He seemed to have that makeup. Leopold, 
I mean, while also a terrible person slash monster seems of a different ilk again the criminal part of it i think he was interested in it but i and i think he found some of it thrilling but i think again without Loeb, like Loeb was the activator you mm-hmm. know and then without Loeb, he just became this like insufferable know-it-all ornithologist guy you know but i do think that component was there with Loeb. this is a long time ago and there's not a lot of those kinds of details. And certainly the family's not going to come out and say, oh, yeah, like Loeb was killing cats in the backyard. But, yeah. you know, who knows what was behind that? I do think it was interesting. And again, I kept going down these little avenues trying to find things that I felt like could kind of unlock things. But I thought it was interesting that um, Leopold's mother had died three years before this. So he had just gone through this trauma. Because, again, if we're looking at it through a modern lens, what was kind of the precipitating incident? Even serial killers often need that kind of stressor in their life that triggers things to happen. I, I think, you know, for for both of them, it also was their upcoming separation. They had become kind of one. They had become one in certain ways, the way that they functioned psychologically. And so in anticipation of parting ways, that's also another kind of trigger that happened not too long before. This is one that I think most people find really hard to comprehend because there isn't much motive. Well, and I love that these geniuses were such fucking idiots. Well, yeah, that's the other part of it. And I tried to like touch on that as I went, but so much, I you know, maybe it's because true crime is such a thing now and a lot of us have read about a lot of cases and you know we think that we know how to how to do it better i guess from having exposure to a lot of different cases but there were so many parts of this like they did nothing to disguise their identity when they went to when leopold went to rent the car other than his name but his face but it and reminds so, me of like serial killers firing their lawyers and defending themselves like it doesn't matter what their iq was their ego was such a blinder and they were like delusional yeah about how much smarter they were to them especially with no empathy we are all just i don't know dumb little butterflies Mm -hmm. that you just squash there's no intelligence at all i think their ego was so strong that they really and granted they were smart they had high iqs but like they thought that everyone else was just dumber than rocks yeah 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 i mean it's like the glasses so the glasses that i mentioned had been leopold's and that was a mistake you know as they were moving the body they slipped out of his coat and even when he knew that glasses had been found, they were following the case. He knew that glasses had been found. He still didn't believe that they would be able to trace them back to him. And so I guess the whole thing depended upon them never having them as suspects. Once they had them as suspects, everything fell apart. So in their plan, they didn't account for the fact that they might come under suspicion. You know, I think when we read about a lot of people now, 
they know that they will be under suspicion and so they take countermeasures right um mm -hmm. to even under suspicion be able to get away with it they just thought we'll never even be under suspicion so we don't need to change our face when we go rent a car they had that rental car at leopold's house like when they started cleaning the blood they were doing it around the block from leopold's house and they had pulled the car into the driveway to, I don't know, switch cars. or So, I mean, it was like things like that. It's hard to like, imagine how they ever thought they wouldn't get caught. They were just so blatant and like picking a victim from who lived across the street from one of them. I mean, it's just. And dropping the like murder weapon in their yard or I guess the bludgeoning weapon. Yeah. Since the death was suffocation. But like. It's just so interesting to see people who were technically smart, but they thought they were so smart and in reality, just so dumb. Yeah. So it was like, I don't think they were so, like you I mean, you just said it exactly. They weren't necessarily like overestimating their intelligence, but they were overestimating their abilities. They were overestimating their emotional intelligence and they were really underestimating everyone else everything that they did hinged on never becoming a suspect and everyone else being just completely stupid mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's a weird one it's a hard one um i can't wait to hear what you found because <laughs> i i think that it's one that really naturally lends itself to archetypes and like strange things because it's frightening to think of people who who d who are not held back by human emotions essentially yeah well moving over into the culture side please rate and review us on apple podcast that really affects the algorithm and helps people find the show Plus, if you write a review and give us five stars, we'll read it on the podcast. And who doesn't want that? So, this crime, like so many crimes of the century, uh, <laughs> has had a major impact on culture. So, in 1929, just five years after the murder, the British play Rope, which was later retitled to Rope's End for its American release, debuted. So the play was loosely based on the case, and it was quite the success. It opened on the West End, and the production ran for six months before it opened on Broadway. And then, just incidentally, in 2009, a revival of Rope began. But, so, even with the play being a massive success on its own, it was also the first play to be broadcast on experimental live television by the BBC in 1939. And then that created sort of our ripple effects that we talk about. So mm -hmm. as those ripples expanded, director Alfred Hitchcock said that he saw the production and was inspired to attempt a feature film version, which brings us to the iconic and often studied 1948 film Rope, starring mm -hmm. James Stewart, John Dahl, and Farley Granger. Rope was Hitchcock's first Technicolor film and is notable for taking place in real time and being edited so as to appear as a single shot through the use of long takes. Mm. So all in all, I think it's 10 shots in the whole movie. Wow. And it's for sure one of his most experimental films. 
Roger Ebert called it, quote, one of the most interesting experiments ever attempted by a major director working with big box office names, end quote. And that structure of the film is why it's studied in film classes today. And incidentally, Hitchcock valued it, but wasn't quite a fan of really? the film. So he said in a uh, in an interview, quote, when I look back, of course, it's quite nonsensical and unreal because I was breaking all my own tradition of using film and the cutting of film to tell a story. But yeah. So it's really that experimental nature is why it's so often studied in film classes. I mean, I think it's a good movie just in and of itself. It's like so interesting, but I think the experimental nature of it is probably what makes it so important in sort of a film legacy as opposed to just the film itself. Mm. Yeah, I didn't know. And I mean, I love that movie, but I didn't know that it was considered experimental. Oh, yeah. There's some really fascinating stuff about how they did it. Like building an entire like model scale of the city, and so like the lighting angles for camera. So like because it was one shot, like time moves weirdly in the movie. Like sunsets will happen very quickly, mm-hmm. um, but like if they're standing in front of a window, there's like an entire model of the city, and the way that like, they set up the dolly tracks and things to tell the mm-hmm. story, and only ten takes, and what sort of like real time. Yeah. So was, wild. Yeah, it was a huge undertaking. But critically, very important film, very successful. It still holds a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, but wow, it very much underperformed at the box office. Mm-hmm. So it earned less than $3 million. And in his book, Rope Unleashed, the screenwriter of the movie, Arthur Lawrence, attributed this failure to audience uneasiness with the homosexual undertones in the relationship between the two lead characters. So toxic masculinity strikes again. Seriously, my God. Um, But seriously, to the listeners, if you haven't watched it, I definitely recommend it. I mean, it's only like 86 minutes. It's not a long (laughs) commitment. Um, And from a filmmaking piece of history it's very interesting the one take nature of it but it's just a good movie too yeah yeah totally it holds up i think and so while rope hitchcock's rope is the only feature film version of the play to date broadcast versions of the play were also released in 57 in england and in 57 and again in 59 in australia then in 1983, it was dramatized and released as a BBC Radio 4 drama for Sunday Night Theater starring Alan Rickman. Mm. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So all of those sort of ripples were from the 1929 play. Mm-hmm. So pivoting back to the crime, a fictionalized version of the events formed the basis for Mayor Levin's 1956 novel, Compulsion. Mm. And incidentally... Compulsion was the first documentary or nonfiction novel, a style later used in Truman Capote's Bone Chilling in Cold Blood, mm. which we may or may not discuss soon. In <laughs> but so in the early 1950s, Levin visited Leopold in prison and requested that Leopold cooperate with him on writing a novel based on the murder. Leopold said no. 
saying he didn't want his story to be fictionalized, but asked Levin if he would help him write his memoir instead. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Levin was unhappy with that suggestion and wrote the novel anyway. Leopold eventually read the book and later wrote that reading it made him, quote, physically sick. More than once I had to lay the book down and wait for the nausea to subside. I felt as I suppose a man would feel if he were exposed stark naked under a strong spotlight before a large audience. End quote. So I think we can all agree, fuck that guy and fuck his feelings. Good. You little fucking piece of shit. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I... I mean, it's becoming a theme that I'm in search of justice. (laughs) And so (laughs) when I found that quote by him, I was like, well, at least that's something you had to endure. Yeah. Um, So personally, I really enjoy that Leopold didn't want the story (laughs) fictionalized. So of all the books and the movies and plays are a big fuck you to him. So that's another reason to watch Rope. Yeah. (laughs) To say F you to this POS. (laughs) (laughs) but back to the book it was a bestseller it won levin a special edgar award by the mystery writers of america in 1957 fun little tangent edgar's named after edgar Allan poe so shout out to our episode um so but to this episode (laughs) levin had such success with the novel that he adapted it into a stage play with the same name so compulsion And Mm -hmm. that premiered on Broadway and ran for 140 performances between October of 57 and February of 58. And that starred Dean Stockwell and Roddy McDowell. Oh, rest in peace. Both of them, but Dean Stockwell just died a couple days ago. (laughs) But then two years later in 59, the novel was made into a film, also by the same name, Compulsion, (laughs) by 20th Century Fox. So... The film, the principal roles were Dean Stockwell and then Bradford Dillman. So I don't know what happened to Roddy McDowell, but didn't join the film. Uh, But top billing for the film went to the much more famous at the time, Orson Welles, Mm -hmm. who played Clarence Darrow. Interesting. In the 59 Cannes Film Festival, Dillman, Stockwell, and Welles won uh, the Best Actor Award. And the film was nominated for the BAFTA Best Picture of the Year. Richard Fleischer was nominated for Best Director by the Directors Guild of America. And Richard Murphy was nominated for Best Screenplay by the Writers Guild of America. So, very successful film. Why is it not more well-known? I don't know. I guess, well, Rope is the one that you're, like, taught. And Hitchcock just had that level. And there's, like, that reverence to his movies now i i suppose that's why yeah but similarly uh leopold sought unsuccessfully to block the production of the film on the grounds that levin's book had invaded his privacy defamed him profited on his life story and quote intermingled fact and fiction to such an extent that they were indistinguishable end quote Eventually, the Illinois Supreme Court ruled against him, noting that Leopold, as a self-confessed perpetrator of the crime of the century, could not reasonably demonstrate that Levin's book had damaged his reputation. (laughs) I saw that. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck that guy. It's like, seriously, you're a child killer. Loeb Um, as well. He, He just happened to already be dead. 
Yeah. So fuck, fuck them both. But Leopold, all this BS. This is why I don't believe he was just like a nice person who was under Loeb's influence and like lived out his life. Yeah, I mean, I and I guess I did kind of weave it in that way. Um, well, I'm I'm over exaggerating. You did not make it sound like he was a nice guy. <laughs> no, no. I mean, but as I'm telling it, I'm thinking, am I being too sympathetic? And you know, there's a part of me that is also wrestling with they had a Jewish identity, and at that time, you know, that was not an easy thing. One of them, their family converted to Christian science, but both of them had Jewish roots. And so, you know, as much privilege as they had, they also had this other identity that meant that they did have, you know, a layer of, of hardship. So I don't want to give the impression that I think that they were swell guys, although Loeb was quite attractive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Um, in a way that, is believable outside of the whatever hysteria that um ted bundy is hot (laughs) yeah i don't know i just they're definitely like it was messed up i'm not saying either one of them was great guys but yeah it's yeah what becomes of monsters as they age i mean and i think this kind of circles us back to and cut this because i'm totally damping on your section but like you know the talk about parker and holm and like as they enter old age like what happens are they different people are they the same you know i don't know i find that really interesting Mm -hmm. sorry but yeah back in it so all of that was again from a single novel about the case so you have sort of like the rope pathway with a bunch of culture and then you have this compulsion pathway with all Mm -hmm. these very successful projects, influential things. So then back to the case, there were two more fictionalized novels um, in 1957, Nothing But the Night by James Yaffe and Little Brother Fate by Mary Carter Roberts. And in 1988, award-winning playwright and Academy Award-winning screenwriter for Gladiator and the Aviator John Logan, his play Never the Center debuted, and it was based on contemporary newspaper accounts of the case and included an explicit portrayal of Leopold and Loeb's sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. Then, lastly, for projects inspired by the crime, we have 2019 season three of The Center. Mm. <laughs> so, Bill Pullman Hive, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of hot, I've always thought Bill Pullman was hot. <laughs> 100% I'm with you. So then for season three of The Sinner, we also bring in Matt Bomer and Chris Messina. So if you're on board, <laughs> you should give it a go of nothing but attractive men. <laughs> um, but it's not just that. Luckily, it's good quality, too. It has an 85% Rotten Tomato score. And that season, season three, had around 2 million viewers. Wow. I'll have to check that out. I like all of those people. And so even though that's it kind of for direct inspiration, I'm definitely not done. So the ripples continue. And in his 2014 book, Murder Most Queer, theater scholar Jordan Schildkraut examines changing attitudes toward homosexuality in various theatrical and cinematic representations of the Leopold and Loeb case. Mm -hmm. 
And now I want to talk about other works that have been influenced, but not direct representatives of the case. Mm-hmm. And the one that was really surprising to me, uh, 1940s groundbreaking novel Native Son by Richard Wright was released. Mm-hmm. And according to Robert Butler, a professor of English at Canisius College, the case was a major influence on the book. So according to historical accounts, Wright followed the case in the Jackson, Mississippi newspapers when it erupted as the, quote, crime of the century. Mm -hmm. The case pushed him to conduct extensive research in Chicago for the completion of Native Son. The novel was a successful and groundbreaking bestseller, selling 250,000 hardcover copies within three weeks of publication by the Book of the Month Club. It was one of the earliest successful attempts to explain the racial divide in America in terms of the social conditions imposed on African Americans by the dominant white society. It's number 71 on the American Library Association lists of the most 100 frequently challenged books. Hmm. The Modern Library placed it number 20 on its list of the 100 best novels of the 20th century. And Time Magazine included the novel in its Time 100 Best English Language Novels from 1923 to 2005. So Native Son is also mentioned in the film American History X. A copy of the book can be seen in the movie The Help. Um, It wasn't all just glowing. James Baldwin criticized the book in his short story, Previous Conditions. Um, But it's mentioned in Edward Bunker's novel, Little Boy Blue, and a large section of Percival Everett's novel, Erasure, contains a parody of Native Son. A line from the trial speech in Native Son is woven into the plot of Lemony Snicket's book, The Penultimate Peril. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Benny Russell cites Native Son as an example of a significant work of African-American literature. The book's also been adapted for the stage many times and has been adapted into a film three times. So I'm a broken record, but the ripples just keep going. Yeah. So again, back to the case and its influence, you know, it sort of had that TV run episodes of Matlock, Columbo, Murdoch Mysteries, all (laughs) sort of influenced by the case, Um, as well as the films Swoon, Funny Games, RSVP, 2002's Murder by Numbers, starring Sandra Bullock and Ryan Gosling. I love Um, that movie. (laughs) So creepy. And I think most recently, it also influenced Daniel Klaus's 2005 graphic novel, Ice Haven, and Stephen Dolanoff's hit off-Broadway musical, Thrill Me, the Leopold and Loeb story. Wow. So (laughs) that was a lot. Yeah. as you can see, I mean, even with as old as it is, and sometimes I guess it it helps with how old it is to give it that time. But any of those cases that were labeled a crime of the century, almost Mm -hmm. immediately within five years had pieces of media churning out about them. People were just fascinated. Well, I mean, I think this one has to be one of the earlier, I mean, I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but it has to be one of the earlier cases, documented cases of a thrill crime, of a thrill kill. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think that for people is just so hard to wrap their brains around. Plus attractive, wealthy. Mm-hmm. It was like against all of the norms. Right. And expectations. I mean, again, they had such a fixed idea of what a kidnapper would be 
that when the note came in perfect English, they were just totally thrown. It was such a thing that they noted as being highly unexpected and irregular. And definitely reading through, you know, I read through not all of the confession, but a lot of it and reading about the trial and, or not the trial, the sentencing hearing, it definitely smacked of some of the same themes that we see in affluenza cases today. So even Mm -hmm. though there's nothing kind of explicitly racial, again, you know, as I'm researching, I can't help but see that they have an identity that you know, is oppressed, but it's also in the backdrop of this changing city that's becoming more and more um, multicultural and mm-hmm. um, all of the white anxiety that goes along with that. Um, but they were definitely playing their affluence um, and expecting that to help them significantly. And it did. I mean, it did in a lot of ways. A black defendant who was 18 would not have been saved from the gallows because they were too young, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. or a lower class defendant who was 18, I don't think would have been saved from the gallows um, because they were too young. And certainly they would not have had the means to hire Clarence Darrow to, to argue their case. Yeah. And I know um, I wanted to mention this earlier, but you mentioned their Jewish identity And I just felt like something I learned, so I feel like maybe listeners might also not be super familiar. The U.S. was, I mean, a lot of people are still anti-Semitic, but the U.S. was massively anti-Semitic at the time. I mean, even leading up to World War II, like, there's this perception, especially for us younger folk, that, like, World War II was a righteous cause to help Jewish people, and that's just not the truth like I I think that's the the narrative of the victors but like the majority of America was super anti-semitic it was not I mean we didn't even know what was happening at concentration camps at the time it was kind of going in blind Mm -hmm. um but it wasn't like this altruistic we loved Jewish people in diversity so yeah at the time like anti-semitism was running rampant in like crazy ways i mean i've seen photos of um nazi rallies filling madison square garden like nazism was trying to be spread in america it like yeah it, it was just a very interesting reality that shattered sort of my world war ii understanding and sort of understanding of that time frame so i just wanted to mention it because it was a shock to me so i thought maybe some listeners might not know that either yeah, definitely. No, I think it's a good point. And as I'm reading this, you know, Loeb, his father was Jewish um, and his mother had been raised Catholic. And I think it's his family that converted to Christian science. And then his mom is the one who lived for a long time and she became active in Christian science. Mm-hmm. Um, but Leopold's family was was Jewish, um, both his mother and his father. They were German Jews who had come over, you know, in previous generations. Um, and that Kenwood area was a Jewish enclave at the time. So in that area, they were well-respected and established and certainly wealthy. But I think that doesn't mean that they weren't also experiencing the negative effects of that part of their identity in the larger scale or when they went out of that neighborhood or 
mm-hmm. those things. So, I mean, I don't have sympathy for them per se. I mean, they definitely were very bad dudes, but you know, I think with all of these cases, as we dig in, there's more to it than just, you know, simple black and white. Yeah. But listeners, thank you for going on this episode, this journey with us. Uh, I wanted to give one last plug. Um, I know we've changed up the format, but as you heard, uh, we're still doing inciting incidents. So send them in. There's a form on our website, mostfowlpod.com. Or you can write directly to us at mostfowlpod at gmail.com. Absolutely. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. 100%. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 